Hello, my name is Dan Quintana and you are listening to the Physiology and Behaviour Podcast. In this episode, I am sharing some audio from a recent talk that I did at the University of Copenhagen on improving the precision of oxytocin research. I discuss some limitations in oxytocin research in terms of study design, mechanism and theory, how I've addressed these limitations to date and how I plan on continue, how I plan to continue addressing these limitations. Hope you enjoy it. Thanks for the uh, kind introduction. Uh, I'm really, uh, really pleased to be back here in Copenhagen. Um, I really love uh, visiting the city. Um, so it's uh, yeah, so it's good to be back. But um, over the next uh, few moments, I'm going to be talking about some of the research that I've been doing, looking at the role of the oxytocin system in how we think and feel. Um, but primarily, some of my work, um, which has been looking at um, oxytocin gene expression in the brain, um, but also um, the role of, uh, of dosage and how intranasal um, dosage makes a difference for our studies. Um, so, yeah, I'll, I'll give a, a very quick, uh, very quick introduction to how oxytocin actually actually works. Uh, so. Uh, the neuropeptide oxytocin, it's, um, mainly, um, mainly produced here, um, here inside the brain, uh, inside the hypothalamus, and it is released both, uh, both centrally and peripherally. Uh, I, and I think this is a really, really important distinction. Um, so within the brain, it can be released, um, axonally, so you can actually get oxytocin when it's released to go to certain parts or certain regions of the brain. Um, and then on top of that, it can also be, it can also be released axonally as well. So it can, so the oxytocin can actually diffuse to uh, to wide regions of the brain, which is important. Um, as I'll demonstrate later on, that oxytocin receptors um, are located all the way around the brain. Um, and on top of that, um, oxytocin is also released peripherally into the circulatory circulatory system, into the blood uh, via the pituitary gland. Um, so this is how, and then all throughout the body, there are oxytocin receptors, um, uh, especially within the brain, um, but also um, around the body, which I'll uh, which I'll show you. Um, gone the wrong way. Now let's go back. Uh, so quite often, oxytocin is is known as a maternal hormone. Um, it's it's known for its role in birth and in in breastfeeding. Um, my, uh, I got, I got a daughter and she's, she's almost two. And, uh, when my wife was in labor, I remember, I remember I was, I was sitting there and, um, and, and then the, the midwife came up going, okay, so the birth's going a little bit slowly. Um, and we're going to administer this thing called, called oxytocin. Have you heard of it? And then I've never felt my wife squeeze my hand so hard. It was even harder than the contractions. She was going, now is not the time to talk about your research. <laughs> Let's just get a, let, let, let's get along with the birth, and I'm like, yeah, I've I've, I've heard of it, yeah, cool. Let, let, let's let's administer it and and help with the birth. But that that is how primarily we know oxytocin. Um, we've known this for about a century. Um, some of the early studies basically took extracts from the brain and use it, use those extracts in the uterus of cats, and notice that once you actually get this extract from the brain, um, which is around the region of the pituitary gland, now that we know, um, these are the things which actually help um, or induce contractions in the uterus which is what um, assists with childbirth. Now, if you actually remove oxytocin system signaling from, uh, from mammals, you can still technically give birth. So it's not, it's not necessary. But if you actually do remove oxytocin signaling, uh, there is no way that you can breastfeed. There is absolutely no way. It is completely, it is totally crucial for breastfeeding if you actually remove 
the oxytocin signaling, it's not going to happen. And they've done this in rats and the rats starve because they can't get fed. So there's the one thing that oxytocin, oxytocin signaling is, uh, is absolutely needed for. But on top of that, when you speak to people in different disciplines and you ask them, what does oxytocin do? They're going to tell you different things. Someone within cardiology will go, oh, it's a, it's a cardiovascular hormone. It, ha- it has, there's oxytocin receptors all through um, the heart and administering oxytocin directly on the heart actually slows down the heart rate. Um, it also plays a role more recently in bone regeneration. Bones, that's not the kind of thing you'd think about with oxytocin, um, but more recent evidence has suggested that. So it has this, uh, this really, um, this really diverse range of, really diverse range of functions. Um, and the way that it can do this is that different receptors all throughout the body are sensitive to different frequencies of oxytocin release. So some receptors are very sensitive to very fast sequences of oxytocin release from the, from the pituitary gland, whereas others are more sensitive to more sort of low level oxytocin release there. So that is how one hormone can have so many different functions and it has a lot of different functions here. Um, so the more recent sort of, we've known about childbirth and breastfeeding for a long time. Um, we've known about heart function for maybe since the eighties. Um, and the two most recent things have been, um, metabolism. Um, a lot of work is actually looking at oxytocin and appetite regulation. So if, if you think oxytocin is overhyped for psychology, just wait till you, wait till you see ads for oxytocin and, and appetite reduction. There, there, all, all these things are happening now. Um, so it plays a, a really, really wide, really, really broad role. Um, oxytocin is a, a really, really old peptide. When you look back in our evolutionary tree, you can actually see that oxytocin or oxytocin-like signaling can be found all the way back to, um, to, to worms and sea, and sea slugs and, and sea, sea snakes. Um, it's, it's a very old peptide. And basically, in most species now, there are sort of four to five, six different forms of oxytocin, like mesotocin, isotocin, which is found in, which is found in fish. Um, but they're very structurally similar, and they do a lot of similar things. Um, so a lot of people kind of think, oh, this is, this is, this is quite a new thing in humans, but it's actually been around for quite a long time and it's still evolving. In a number of different, um, monkey species, there are actually new versions of oxytocin, um, which seem to play a role when it comes to, uh, there's one new version of oxytocin, um, which seems to play a role in species that have more paternal investment in, um, in their offspring. So there's a lot of interesting work that is, um, that is going on there. So speaking of early species, Looking at the roundworm, um, there's a lot of um, research actually looking at what happens when you actually remove oxytocin signaling in the roundworm. Um, there was a really great experiment that was done a couple of years ago where basically if you're looking at a worm um, and you put it in a low salt environment with food, this, this is a good thing. Worms like food. But as soon as you actually remove the food, then this environment actually becomes somewhat aversive and they learn to actually remove themselves away from this environment. So again, when you actually present the environment, uh, an aversive environment without the food, they've learned to associate certain environments with not having any food and they basically escape from that environment as well. However, when you actually remove oxytocin or the oxytocin signaling from roundworms and you do the same sort of thing, the same sort of association, um, associate those things and they move away, except when you actually present it again, they haven't learnt. They haven't learnt. So oxytocin seems to play an important role in evolutionarily ancient species when it comes to how we learn and how we actually predict what's going to happen in future environments, um, which, which, is, which, is, which is incredible. And a lot of people don't actually know that it plays a role in these, uh, in these ancient species. Now, um, 
the actual Greek word for, for hormone comes from the, the term um, I excite. And when it comes to excitement and peptides, there is, there is nothing, nothing quite like oxytocin. Um, this, this is a figure that me and my colleagues put together a couple of years ago, reflecting the sort of hype that we see around oxytocin. You can almost replace this with any sort of biomarker or any sort of new special thing that people are investigating within, uh, within psychology. But basically, with any sort of new technology, what happens is there's, you get this sort of cycle. We, we see this with, with self-driving cars at the moment. A couple of years ago, we we're like, self-driving cars, they're gonna, they're gonna save absolutely everything. They're gonna, they're gonna save us from driving. They're gonna save the environment. All, all this, all this kind of stuff. Um, so there's, this is hope and this is excitement. Um, and you have all, all these, all these newspaper articles, you know, extolling the virtues of self-driving cars. But then there's a few accidents and people actually realize, you know, maybe these things aren't as good as we hype them up to be. Until you get to the point where you actually begin to understand the current limitations of the technology until you reach a so-called um, productivity um, plateau. And we've, we've seen something very similar with, with oxytocin. Um, like I said, we've known about oxytocin's role in childbirth and, and breastfeeding for a long time. But it wasn't until um, the late 60s when researchers began to actually hypothesize that maybe oxytocin plays a role in social behavior. Um, I, uh, about a year ago, I wanted to investigate what was the first time someone actually proposed this. And I spent a good couple of days going back into the literature, back, 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 back to the first, to the first, to the first citation. And I found it. I think I found it at least. And it was a citation talking about goats. The first time was about goats. People were very interested in goat, in, in the behavior between um, mothers and, and their kids in goats. And one researcher sort of, one researcher hypothesized, well, maybe the hormone that we know is involved in birth is also involved in the bonding between these two things. And it was just a sentence. It was a sentence in the paper, but that was the first time in 1968 that someone actually proposed that it plays a role in social behavior. Um, much more recently, um, around around the 70s and 80s, people started looking at maternal behavior. They sort of, leading on from this goat research, they were, they were thinking, well, when it comes to small rodents, um, perhaps there's a situation where with small rodents, um, um, uh, oxytocin, which we know is involved in birth, is also involved in maternal behavior. And this came to bear. Um, by knocking out the oxytocin system, um, you're able to eliminate a lot of maternal behaviors. But also, the cool thing is, if you're actually able to experimentally increase oxytocin, you can actually, um, you can get virgin rats to act like their mothers. They start collecting pups. Usually, virgin rats completely ignore pups or eat them. But when you actually give them increased oxytocin, they begin magically acting like mothers. Because once these mothers actually get pregnant and start to give birth, their oxytocin levels increase. But once you actually increase oxytocin level levels in virgin pups, they start acting like mothers. So these, this, it, it was this research, this animal research which came out and people were thinking, this is fantastic. Um, until someone decided, what if we actually give this to humans? What is, what, what is this going to do? In, in a lot of countries, I'm not sure if it's the case here in Denmark, but in Norway, um, oxytocin is indicated to help with breastfeeding. You can go to the pharmacy. If you're having trouble with breastfeeding, you can go to the pharmacy, get a nasal spray, and it'll help with your breastfeeding. Um, and because this has been known for quite a while, it's actually relatively easy to make oxytocin. So a researcher thought, well, what if we actually administer oxytocin to someone? How's it actually going to, um, how's it going to impact on social behavior? And so in 2005, um, uh, researchers actually administered oxytocin to look at its role in trusting behavior. If you administer a single dose of oxytocin through the nose, and I'm going to go into why you're going to do it through the nose a little bit later, does this actually increase 
um, our trust, how much we trust other people. This was done in an economic game, and the researchers report in um, uh, in science. This is a paper that came out in science that um, oxytocin actually increases trusting behavior. You're more likely to give more money to other people if you've been given oxytocin versus placebo. Uh, mind you, this is this was a sample of like 15 people, so it wouldn't pass muster today. But that's what started everything. People were thinking, "Wow, we have this." We have this pro-social hormone. We have this hormone that's going to make everyone trust each other and increase sort of the social connectedness between people. And then we started getting some more investigations um, in, um, in, in disorders that are characterized by poor social cognition, like schizophrenia, like autism. People started finding that oxytocin, a single dose of oxytocin, increases gaze to the eye region. And this is important because the eyes actually transmit a lot of information. Um, one of the most common tests of theory of mind is the reading the mind in the eyes test. Uh, and this is a good test because you can actually get a lot, a lot of information just from the eye region. So people actually found that oxytocin increases gaze to the eye region and that it also increases or improves theory of mind, which is the understanding what other people are, the understanding what other people, um, are, are thinking or feeling. So a whole bunch of studies came out with this, both in neurotypical participants, but also in psychiatric populations. People were getting really excited. Um, until we got to the point, uh, this, this really, really hyped up point where, um, you know, people were writing stories that t- 10 reasons that oxytocin is the most uh, amazing molecule in the world. And people are beginning to, to, people were selling this online. You can go to Amazon, type in oxytocin nasal spray, and you can get some big promises. Look, look, look at the stuff here that, that it purportedly, this nasal spray purportedly does. Um, the, the, the funny thing is, all these things have actually been linked to in the literature. Um, but it's very, very doubtful that this spray is even oxytocin in the first place. But even if it was, um, it's a lot more complex than that. So we had peak oxytocin hype. Um, then, then from there, um, we began to have a lot of backlash from a lot of science journalists, um, where people were kind of going, well, maybe we need a more nuanced look at what, 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 what oxytocin does. And journalists started questioning it and also researchers. And people were going, well, when we actually look at the literature and we actually, we, we can actually see that a lot of this stuff, um, a lot of this stuff doesn't, doesn't replicate. Um, so people were actually redoing these studies, looking at oxytocin and social functioning. And much like much of the rest of the literature in psychology, people were redoing these experiments and finding we don't find these same effects. When we actually give a single dose of intranasal oxytocin, we're not replicating its effects on social cognition. So people started going, well, this, it, it's, it's the end of oxytocin. This stuff doesn't work. Um, and people w- w- were beginning to doubt what it actually does. Um, there were a lot of negative studies um, until... We started actually understanding the nuance behind what oxytocin actually does. Um, researchers began to, to, to reframe their understanding of, of oxytocin's role. Um, like I said before, we originally thought oxytocin was a pro-social hormone, that it does stuff um, to, to, to increase positive behaviours. Um, but then uh, a paper came out to actually demonstrate that oxytocin increases um, uh, envy um, and getting pleasure from the misfortune of other people. Um, all this kind of stuff. And people were, hang on a minute. Well, it's not, it's not, it's not a social hormone if it does all this so-called negative stuff. So as soon as we, we began reframing what oxytocin actually did, all of a sudden a lot of the findings actually started to make more sense. Um, and because of this, people were reframing it. Okay. It's not a pro-social hormone, but it is likely to be a social salience hormone in the sense that it actually increases the saliency of social cues in your environment, both positive and both negative. And on top of that, people were also suggesting, well, maybe it's not a social salience hormone, but maybe it actually increases your propensity to approach other people rather than avoid other people. So there, there, there are these two competing theories. But most importantly, 
they address the fact that it's not necessarily a, um, a, a positive hormone, um, so to speak. So now we've been reframing what, uh, what oxytocin actually does. And now that we're doing this, the, we're still getting null studies. These, these things are still happening, but they're happening less and less because we're not actually holding to the standard that it's a pro-social hormone, more that it's a hormone um, that has a role in increasing the saliency. Um, okay, so a lot of my research recently has been looking at how can we actually increase the precision of oxytocin research. I want to get to this point, to this plateau of productivity quicker. I want to get there quicker because um, I believe that this, this here's a peptide that has a, lo- a long evolutionary history, obviously plays an important role in human physiology and behavior, but we don't actually know what that role is. But in order to do that and get to this plateau of productivity, um, we need to improve the precision of oxytocin research. And that's what I've been doing over the past few years. Um, I see that right now there, there are three broad limitations in oxytocin research. Um, but I'm also going to be talking about um, how I actually address these limitations, um, how I'm going to continue doing this in the future, um, and how I'm actually going to be testing, uh, testing a new theory. Um, there are three different areas or three different limitations that have been identified. Um, firstly is study design. Um, poor study design is leading to these um, null results or leading to these results which don't replicate, to be more correct. Uh, in addition to that, there's also been a, a poor understanding of mechanism. How does oxytocin actually work? We don't, actually, we don't know that well. And finally, I'm also going to be addressing uh, theory. Like I said before, we've been readjusting our conception about what oxytocin does from a pro-social hormone to a social salience hormone. Um, but I think, I think there's even more than that, and we'll, 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 get to that, uh, we'll get to that eventually. Okay, so the first things I want to talk about is ways that we can actually um, look at uh, improving our statistical inference tools and also uh, sample size estimation. Um, a, a famous paper came out a few years ago um, highlighting, at least within neuroscience, that sample sizes are too small to detect the kind of effects that we want to detect in neuroscience and psychology. And this has been repeated again and again across different fields. Our sample sizes generally are too small. Um, and uh, then, then in, I think in 2015, a, a paper came out um, which was highlighting this exact fact in oxytocin research. I think the final figure was that um, most, oxit- only, uh, most oxytocin studies on average only, only have 14% statistical power, which means that 14, this is only going to replicate about 14% of the time, um, which is really, really bad. Um, but I think it's important. Uh, a lot of people, when this paper came out, were like, oh, this isn't good for the field. But I think this is great for the field. Because unless you actually know what problems you have, you can't actually fix them and address them. So thinking about um, thinking about um, sample size estimation, quite often when you speak to people and you ask them, how are you actually calculating your sample sizes for your studies? People are like, oh, I'm, I'm anticipating a, a medium effect size or a small effect size or a large effect size using Cohen's defaults. But the thing about Cohen's defaults is that these are only designed to be a fallback when you had no idea what kind of effect size you would anticipate. So people are designing their studies based on, on a fallback method doing, and this was never the design of, of what Cohen did. So we need better ways, and a lot of reasons why these things aren't replicating is that we're not actually, um, uh, we're not actually designing our studies properly. Um, so there is a way that you can actually um, do more evidence-based power calculations. So going back to, to, to Cohen's definitions, basically a medium effect size should be the median effect. So say you have 100 studies for, for, for a given phenomena or, or a given research question. 
Um, and then you, if you were to look at the median effect for those 100 studies, there is your, that's how, that's how he calculated in the first place. That is your median effect. And then a small effect is 25%, a median 25% lower than that. And then a large effect is 25% higher. So you're looking at the 25th, um, 50th, and 75th percentile. That's what Cohen said, but that's what no one actually does. So what I did was, um, for a slightly different field, this is looking at cardiac psychophysiology, which is a s- small part of the research that I do, um, I actually put together an evidence-based, um, uh, uh, evidence-based effect size for power calculations. And I looked at um, 300 effects, which um, were across like 10 meta-analyses. So I didn't actually extract the effects from e- every individual study because that would have taken a long time. I let other people do the work for me. And people who did meta-analyses, I extracted the data from them. And then I looked at the distribution of these effects. What is the 50th percentile, the 25th, and the 75th? And by doing this, I was able to get a more accurate conception of what a small, medium, and large effect size truly is. And when you look at the literature, actually comparing um, uh, the literature against Cohen's benchmarks, they don't actually correspond. Well, the medium is, is extremely close, but the small and large effect sizes are qu- actually quite different than if you were to use Cohen's benchmarks. And this is the sort of thing that you can do. It's not just relevant to oxytocin research. It's relevant to every single type of research. People have done this now for personality research, for, and, and people are now doing this more and more in more and more fields, looking at their own fields and actually asking the question, what is a small effect in my field? And what is a large effect in my field? And there are a lot of implications for this when it comes to actually um, uh, planning your future studies. Uh, of course, a big issue with this is that is, is publication bias. Um, quite often, the studies that are reported, um, either uh, non-significant studies are either not reported or the studies that are, are inflating their, their effect sizes. Studies that are published and that are not pre-registered tend to have inflated effect sizes due to questionable research practices. Um, so I did a check looking at um, whether there's an increased amount of studies than we would expect. Anything in the... Um, uh, in the zones here, in the yellow and the red zones, um, that is what would be around 0.05, P equals 0.05. If this field um, was actually uh, partaking in questionable research practices or p-hacking, then you'd actually you'd find a lot of studies in here, but we didn't. So at least for this particular field, we can be a little bit more confident that these effect sizes uh, are, better, are actually a pretty good representation of what the effect sizes uh, truly are. Um, so the, the code is online and part of this paper. So if you want to actually apply this to your own work, it's relatively easy to do. Um, now, um, I want to talk about um, when it comes to traditional uh, null hypothesis significance testing, um, the way that things are, you can only reject or not reject the null hypothesis. You can't actually make any inferences uh, about the null hypothesis. There, there's nothing you can say about that. It's either rejection or not rejection. Um, and I think this is this is quite a shortcoming because in psychology, I think it's really important that we can actually falsify our hypotheses. If you can't falsify your hypotheses, you might look at a, a non-significant test going, well, maybe it didn't have enough participants. Um, may, maybe it is a null effect. I don't know. But and then you keep you keep doing your research. You need you need a way to be actually able to falsify your hypotheses so you can actually say, hey, maybe this doesn't work, and we can try something else. Um, one way of doing this is doing Bayesian hypothesis testing. Um, I saw this was a need within oxytocin research, so I put together a very easy-to-follow tutorial um, uh, on using a point-and-click software for Bayesian 
hypothesis testing. So you can actually look at the relative evidence for a null hypothesis against an alternative hypothesis. You can't do this with traditional p-values, but with Bayesian hypothesis testing, um, you, you can do this. Now, if you do want to stick with the frequentist framework, um, there is a way that you can do this uh, using equivalence testing, which I'm going to go through. Um, but in, in the context of oxytocin research, uh, a, couple, a couple of years ago, a paper came out where people were like, okay, we opened up our file drawer and we went through, um, we've reported positive results in oxytocin research previously, and we went through, we opened up our file drawer, here's all our papers, oxytocin doesn't work, let's abandon the whole thing, um, we can all, you can all go home and do something else. And so I read this, I'm like, oh, this is actually pretty, pretty bad for the field. This is also pretty bad, pretty bad for me. And, but, but what they were doing was they were using traditional p-values as a way to support a null hypothesis. So I took a closer look to see whether these effects were actually statistically equivalent using equivalence testing. Um, now, when it comes to a classical null hypothesis significance testing, you're basically testing can, is the effect zero or is the idea that the effect is zero? Can that be rejected? But what, what I want to talk about is what's on the right here, which is whether we can actually test for statistical equivalence. Um, and by doing that, we're actually asking the question, um, can an effect um, at least as small as a, as, as a given effect size be rejected? Um, so what, what this means is, is say we think that an effect size of 0.02 is essentially worthless. Can we actually reject that? And if you can do that, then you can demonstrate statistical equivalence, um, which I think is, is, is quite important. So to, to think about sort of effect sizes that, that we don't actually care about, um, there was an experiment done a few years ago, um, the ethics aside, where Facebook actually manipulated or tried to manipulate how people felt. They changed the sort of things that you would see in your Facebook feed and wanted to see, does that affect what you post yourself later? Um, and I actually found... Um, the, the, the researchers were lo- looked at a huge sample size because it's Facebook, uh, and they found a very, very small p-value, and everyone was like, look at this p-value, this is incredible. But when you actually look at Cohen's D, it is tiny, it is 0.02. Um, when you look a little bit closer, um, what this actually means is, well, if you're looking at sort of the, the male population, the US male population, the, the standard deviation of height is 7.1 centimeters. So if for some reason we had an intervention that magically improved height, a Cohen Z of 0.02 is equivalent to a 13 millimeter increase in height. So it essentially, uh, it, it essentially means nothing. Um, okay, so there's a number of different ways. Um, I'll, I'll recommend that you um, look into the tutorial papers for applying, uh, applying equivalence testing for your own research. Um, uh, there's, yeah, and there's a lot of free online tools for actually doing this, but Either by doing that or Bayesian hypothesis testing, um, these are ways that you can actually um, um, look at evidence for a null hypothesis or look at evidence for equivalence testing. Um, now, looking at that study that I, that I redid or the work that I redid, I actually found that the majority of the actual studies um, were due to data sensitivity. So these people were going, oh, look, oxytocin doesn't work. Um, the p-value is insignificant. But in actual fact, over 70% of these studies were due to data insensitivity in that their sample sizes were too small. Quite often you see people online going, oh, like, you know, look, look, look at this, um, uh, look at, look at this positive study. Um, look at, look at the sample size is tiny. Um, but then another bit of work comes out, which is non-significant. And they're like, look, non-significant doesn't work, but they don't actually apply 
the same sort of standards when it comes to sample size. You need to actually apply the same sort of sample, the same um, sort of standards when it comes to sample size, even for um, non-significant studies. Okay, um, so the, the next thing I want to talk about is mechanism and how we can actually better understand uh, what what oxytocin does. Um, another paper came out in 2005, another critical oxytocin paper. It was it was it was quite a year for critical oxytocin papers, uh, with a very provocative title: uh, "Intranasal Oxytocin: Myths and Delusions." Um, now, almost every single time I submit an oxytocin paper to a journal, one of the first questions is, "What about the myths and delusions paper? How have you addressed this?" So now, by default, I actually already do this in the paper, anticipating, because it always happens. And if you don't mention it, reviewers will mention it. Um, and and there, there, there are four things that, that came out from, from this paper, or four things that were emphasized. Um, making data openly available, um, dose-response studies, controlling for peripheral effects, and whether peripheral measures reflect central release. And uh, from when this paper came out, um, so much of my work has actually been, okay, how can we actually uh, address these particular questions. Um, now, I want to talk about data sharing, which is one of the things raised here and which is a big question within psychology. Um, there is a huge number of benefits for data sharing. Um, the first one being the verification of your analysis. Um, it's, it's really important in science. People can actually verify your work. Um, quite often, people will say in their papers, oh, the, 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 the data is available upon request. When you email them, though, they're like, oh, it's, uh, I moved offices a few years ago. The data's gone. Um, oh, that, that's a student. I can't contact, contact them anymore. It's very difficult to actually get that data to verify people's analyses. So if the data is open by default, this makes, make, makes it much easier. But on top of that, um, having open data also encourages the generation of new hypotheses um, and uh, the gen- generation of new knowledge. So it's... It's, it's quite a, a, wa- a waste of resources if we're actually keeping our data to ourselves because other people can't actually work on that, working on ideas that we may have missed. Um, so if, if there's anyone here who actually does work with clinical participants, they'll say, oh, we, we can't do that. We can't share our data because of privacy concerns. And I totally get that. And I think that is a legitimate, uh, a le- legitimate concern and legitimate reason why people shouldn't be sharing data. Um, but there is actually a way around this, a way that you can share data while still maintaining the privacy of your, of your participants. Um, and this is via a technique called synthetic data. When you actually create a synthetic data set, not a single person in the synthetic data set actually represents a real person, yet the data still holds the same statistical properties as the original data set and the same relationships um, between the variables. Um, so what it means is, is that you can actually share your synthetic data set and people can verify your analyses and people can also explore the data set much in the same way as if you were releasing the raw data set. And, and this is a method which has been, um, um, pioneered in census research. So people are looking at, um, you know, school outcomes, for instance, and people can say, well, we, we don't have, we, we don't want to release these, this, this sensitive information. So here's the synthetic data set. But it's only been used once or twice within psychology, and I think it's a real shame. Um, so um, I'm trying to I'm trying to promote within my own work, but also um, by by the use of tutorials on how to actually increase synthetic data um, in the psychological sciences. Um, if you're familiar with R, or even if, even if you're not, this is really really easy to do. It's um, done in a package called Synthpop, which is a really cool name, and the actual way to calculate it is uh, is is really is surprisingly simple. And what it does is, um, so it basically takes the same data, 
Um, and it, um, using a method which is very similar to multiple imputation, it shuffles things around so that there's not a single person that actually represents their, their, their real person, yet the relationships are still the same. Um, so looking at the distribution of variables um, between a synthetic data set and a real data set, you can see these things are very similar. So um, the, the frequencies for each variable are extremely similar. But what's more important is that if you were to run um, uh, regression models, the outcomes are almost exactly the same. So the, 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 co- the coefficient estimates and the um, confidence intervals are almost exactly the same. Here you can see there's a high amount of overlap. Um, of course, this is going to work with every single... It, it's not magic in the sense that it's not always going to give you stuff that's very similar. Sometimes you have to adjust the parameters, and for some data sets, it's simply not going to work. But for most of the data sets that I've trialed it with, it works really, really well and gives you frequency distributions which are very similar to the original data set, um, but also um, uh, outcomes which are also very much the same. So if you're interested, um, I've written up a preprint. Um, so this paper is currently under review and written up a preprint um, with a, a, a very uh, easy guide on how to actually do this yourself if you're interested in sharing your data while at the same time maintaining participant privacy. Okay, back to, uh, back to oxytocin research. Um, one of the main criticisms is, is whether oxytocin research or whether intranasally administered oxytocin actually reaches the brain. The reason that we actually give oxytocin intranasally is that oxytocin is a relatively large molecule. Um, if you give it orally or via injection, it's not going to cross the blood-brain barrier in large amounts. Uh, the nose is, is the only part of the body which actually has direct access to the brain. Direct access to the brain. So if you do want to administer a, a molecule or a substance to the brain, um, intranasally is one of the best, way, best ways you can actually do this. Um, the uh, upper and posterior region of the nasal cavity is blanketed by um, olfactory and trigeminal nerves. The olfactory nerve goes straight into your um, olfactory bulb, and the trigeminal nerve also goes directly into the brain. And studies have actually found when you radio-label molecules um, in rodents, you can actually track them and see the molecules go from the nose into the brain via these roots. So this is how oxytocin, when you administer it intranasally, reaches the brain. Um, but of course, your nose is also highly vascularized, so you get a lot of oxytocin also going to the blood as well. So when you administer it intranasally, it goes to the brain, and it goes to the blood. Um, in the brain, oxytocin lasts for about seven minutes, then it's broken down. Uh, in the blood, it's about two minutes, and it's broken down. However, when you actually measure levels either in the brain by using um, a spinal tap or cerebrospinal fluid, or in the blood using a blood draw or via saliva, you actually get increased levels of oxytocin 40 minutes, an hour after administration. It can't be the exogenous oxytocin because we know it's broken down. What it means is that Exogenous oxytocin administration kickstarts the production of endogenous oxytocin within the brain. So o- oxytocin is actually released within the brain and within the body. Uh, and this has been demonstrated um, in animal models, um, but also looking at humans, um, the increased levels can only be because of endogenous or new endogenous production. Um, and even when you actually completely knock out the oxytocin system in mice, we actually see after intranasal administration, it increases levels. And we see in humans using, by, by actually, uh, by drawing through respinal fluid that oxytocin levels increase. Um, so there's, there's a fair, there's a fair bit of evidence that by using this method, we can actually increase oxytocin levels in the brain in order to impact on behavior. Now, um, an important question is, okay, well, collecting spinal fluid is, is, is not easy. It's much easier to actually collect, 
um, peripheral, either, either via saliva or by blood or by urine. But the question is, well, does this actually have a relationship between what's happening centrally? Can we take blood measures? Can we take saliva measures and make inferences about what's happening in central levels? Um, and we actually looked at this, this, this research question. Um, and we found that after intranasal administration, there is indeed um, a relationship between central and peripheral levels. Um, after an experimental stressor, there is a relationship be- between these two things. But basically, under baseline, there doesn't seem, at least from the evidence that we have, doesn't seem to be a relationship. Now, this, meta- this meta-analysis, um, there hasn't been that many human studies. So this meta-analysis only has one or two human studies with small sample sizes. So um, it doesn't suggest that it's not necessarily happening, but it suggests that we need to think very carefully when it comes to making inferences about central levels in the brain from when we actually collect um, peripheral levels using blood. Um, okay, so the next question is the, the, the question of dosage. Uh, quite often when you ask oxytocin researchers, okay, so you've, what, what dose did you administer? And they're probably going to tell you 24 international units. And you'll go, well, why did you do that particular dose? And they'll say, well, that's what the last person did. And then you ask the last person and you ask them, and you have exactly the same line of questioning. Well, that's what the last person did. No one actually knows why we picked this dose. Happened to be the first dose that someone tried and everyone's been doing it since. So a lot of these questions of non-significant results might not be due to the fact that oxytocin does or doesn't work. It's the fact that we're using the wrong dose in the first place. Maybe we're completely missing it. Maybe we need a dose that's much, much lower. Maybe we need a dose that's much, much higher. Um, we do know with intravenous administration of oxytocin, we need really high doses in order to reach the brain. Really, really high doses. Um, but we don't know whether that's the case for intranasal oxytocin. Um, so I wanted to answer this question and no one's done it. Everyone keeps doing exactly the same dose. So I wanted to see, okay, what happens if we actually do a dose dependent study? And this is what I did as, um, as part of, as part of my postdoc. So to answer this question, we had uh, four arms in our study, and this was a within-participant study. So participants came back uh, four times to the lab to do these different conditions. Um, the first condition, and you'll also notice that this nasal spray device looks a bit weird, um, and we're actually testing a new device, um, which, is, which is really important because the nasal sprays that you get from the pharmacy were never designed to administer drugs to the brain. They were only designed to administer drugs to the nasal region. It doesn't mean, it doesn't mean that you can't do this. It doesn't mean that you can't necessarily not use these, these traditional devices, but it means you have to do a lot of things to make sure that it's going to the right area. Tilt the head slightly back. Make sure they're breathing in, but not, 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 not too much. Um, this device, which was designed by a nasal surgeon, takes away a lot of, a lot of the guesswork when it comes to intranasal administration. So one purpose of this study was actually testing this new nasal spray device, which actually works quite well. Uh, in the sense that it delivers oxytocin to these upper and posterior regions of the brain, which is more likely to increase central levels. So, uh, for the first condition, we administered a low dose of oxytocin and a placebo IV. So, people had the spray and they also had the IV as well. And this is done in a scanner too. So, this, this was, uh, um, in hindsight, it was, it was, it was quite a big undertaking, but we, we, we got there in the end. Um, second condition was a traditional dose of oxytocin, 24 international units and placebo IV. Uh, the next one was a placebo intranasal oxytocin and oxytocin IV. And the final one was placebo, placebo. Now, the reason that I was so interested in looking at placebo IV was this idea that we have um, oxytocin receptors all throughout the body. Um, so perhaps there are effects that we actually see 
on these peripheral oxytocin receptors that have effects on behavior. But more importantly, I wanted to actually demonstrate that intranasal oxytocin travels, um, intranasal administering oxytocin travels to the brain via direct nose-to-brain routes. If we actually saw effects after peripheral oxytocin, then that would mean that oxytocin travels to the brain via the blood, which we think might happen, but we're not, but we're not too sure. But by combining or by comparing intranasal versus intra- intravenous, we're able to actually help rule out how it gets to the brain. Is it directly via the nose or is it indirectly via the blood? For the actual experiment, um, we administered the, um, the, the, the dosages and, uh, and then we did a small social, uh, a social cognitive paradigm, which I think took about 20 minutes or so, um, where people were asked, um, how angry or how, how happy people's faces were. So a, a quite a straightforward task because it was not a scanner. So you're kind of, kind of limited there. Um, and then we took resting state and structural MR. But the most important thing was the social cognitive task. So the, the most important thing that we found, or one of the most important things that we found, was that there was equivalent peripheral um, oxytocin concentrations after both intranasal and peripheral oxytocin. So this means that after both types of administration, we see the same sort of levels in the blood, which means that if we if we see increase if we see differences after intranasal, then we can we can actually have a much better idea that it's via nose to brain routes that doesn't cross the blood brain barrier. Um, so what we found was that. Um, only the lower dose of intranasal oxytocin had effects on social cognition. The higher dose, which is the more traditional dose, didn't have any effects, and the intravenous dose didn't have any effects as well, which demonstrates firstly that a lower dose in this context seems to be more effective, but also that intravenous oxytocin doesn't work, and that, which also means that oxytocin ha- happens to travel to the brain via these nose-to-brain pathways. Um, and then we also, one of the most replicated findings within oxytocin research is that oxytocin administration dampens amygdala activity when you present emotional stimuli. And we, we, we replicated that. And once again, we found that it was a lower, it was a lower dose that actually had these effects, not the higher dose, not intravenous and, um, compared to placebo at least. So it was nice to see that. Um, because we're working with a nasal surgeon, he was very concerned about the nasal physiology of, of our participants. So what we did was we, um, we administered or we, we tested nasal cavity dimensions using acoustic chronometry. Um, this is basically like an ultrasound for your nose. And it looks at the dimensions and actually tells you, using sound waves, how wide or how narrow your nasal cavity is. Um, and we did this for every single participant, firstly to make sure that they had a good nasal cavity, because if the nasal cavity is too narrow, you're not going to get any drugs up there in the first place. But also to see whether individual differences in nasal cavity dimensions actually play a role in oxytocin response. And we did find that, that there was a role when it came to nasal physiology um, for the, this response, um, which is kind of sobering when, when you consider, we used to kind of think, oh, just spray and pray, it'll get up there in the brain. But what we need to do is think really carefully about how we're actually administering uh, oxytocin um, uh, intranasally. Um, now, thinking about the impact of, um, of, uh, of physiology as well, we also um, looked at pupillometry or pupil dilation, and we found similar results, that the lower dose of oxytocin had effects on pupil dilation, but not the um, uh, not intravenous or not the more traditional dose. Um, and these effects were also strongly related to amygdala activity in the brain. So it was nice to have all these, um, all these results uh, come together. 
Um, okay, so that was on neurotypical participants. So the next step was actually looking at participants with autism who were characterized by social cognitive deficits. Uh, p- people with autism tend to have trouble in actually pulling out social information from the environment. So we did a similar type of investigation. We removed the intravenous component because that was very complicated. And we removed the scanning component because that was also complicated. And we just did the two doses, placebo and the social cognitive task. And we found that oxytocin administration, or the lower dose, once again, appeared to normalize people's perceptions of emotions. So compared to neurotypical participants who would say this person on average um, has a certain um, a certain amount of anger or, or emotion in their face, we actually found that after oxytocin administration, this actually uh, improved or normalized the sort of responses that you get there. Okay, so... There, there have been really two papers or two reviews that have really informed my research over the past few years. The first one was the Myths and Delusions paper. Um, the second one was an opinion piece by the, the, form, the former head of the NIMH in the States, Tom Insel, who, who has now done his own tech startup company because that's, that's what you do in America. And he said that it's in order to actually demonstrate that oxytocin works, um, we need to get a map of occupant, we need to get a map of oxytocin receptors in the human brain. Right now, we don't, we don't know where it goes in the brain or what targets there are in the brain. At the moment, we only know what targets look like in animals. Um, so people just didn't know what was happening in the brain, in the human brain, that is. Um, and this is really important when you experimentally manipulate oxytocin receptors in, um, in species. This is the prairie vole, and this is a species um, which is characterized that they're socially monogamous. They generally partner up. They generally partner up for life. About 3% of mammalian species are socially monogamous, including humans, but the prairie vole is a nice laboratory um, uh, species because they're small and relatively um, uh, easy to care for, but they're socially monogamous um, and they, 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 they pair up and they take care of the young together. It's very, very cute. Uh, what you can do is you can actually experimentally increase or decrease oxytocin receptor expression in the brain. And they did this in the nucleus accumbens, which is an important region for reward and which has been shown to have increased oxytocin receptor levels in the, in the prairie vole compared to the closely related meadow vole, which is very closely related but not socially monogamous. So when they actually increased oxytocin receptor expression in the nucleus accumbens, they were able to increase social behavior, but then when they decreased it experimentally, they did the opposite. So this demonstrates that oxytocin receptor expression within the brain plays a really important role in behavior and cognition. So what about humans? Um, there, there, has been a, there has been a few studies which have looked at um, oxytocin receptor expression in certain parts of the brain. They'll, they'll get a post-mortem study and they'll go, we, we got four regions of the brain um, that were increased here and decreased there. But the problem with that is we know when it comes to mental states that the mental states don't reside in specific regions of the brain. They, they, they go across entire regions, entire networks. So in order to actually make inferences about mental states and how, how a receptor system actually affects our thoughts and feelings, we need to get a whole picture. But no one's done this to date. But that is exactly uh, what we addressed using the Allen Human Brain Dataset and this is a data set of six human brains, um, anywhere from 300 to 900 samples throughout the brain. And a microarray was performed where genes, over 20,000 protein coding genes, the expression of these genes was studied in all these different regions. And because we had such a high resolution, you can actually make maps. And we were, we were able to create 
a gene expression map of the oxytocin receptor. Now, of course, you can do this with any gene of interest, but we specifically looked at the oxytocin receptor. Of over 20,000 protein-coding genes, and from there, we could create expression maps to see where do these uh, oxytocin receptors actually reside uh, reside in the brain. Um, all right, so, so looking at um, the AAL atlas, uh, we found that oxytocin was oxytocin receptors were increased in central regions, but also um, in, the, in the olfactory region, which is really interesting because we tend to think that humans, that olfaction in humans doesn't play an important role as it does in rodents. And we know that oxytocin receptors are increased in, in, in the olfactory regions in rodents, um, but we also found that this was increased in humans which is really interesting when you consider this is the first route of entry when you're administering oxytocin intranasally in the brain. So this is really cool to see. Um, and then because we were actually, um, because we, we collected or we, we analyzed data forever for all these protein coding genes, we were able to actually look at the relationship between the oxytocin receptor and other important receptor systems. And we found a very high correlation between the oxytocin receptor system and the dopaminergic and acetylcholine genes as well. Um, so basically, um, the, for the DRD2 receptor, which plays an important role in reward, regions with high DRD2 receptor expression also were regions that had high oxytocin receptor expression. Um, so one of the first questions I get is, oh, you know, there are only six participants. Um, what can you learn from this? But these patterns were highly stable between all these six donors. Uh, and the oxytocin receptor and CD38, and CD38 is the gene which regulates the excretion of oxytocin, were among the top 10% of genes that were stable from, from person to person. Um, and these genes that um, tend to have a, a high stability from person to person have, have a very high biological relevance. Um, but also when you look at the individuals, both different ethnicities and different sexes, we found that there was a high stability of the oxytocin receptor um, uh, between males and females. Uh, which is interesting because quite often we get different effects between males and females. So these different effects uh, don't, don't seem to be due to different oxytocin receptor patterns, but seem to be due with interactions with, uh, with, with sex hormones. Now, we're able to create a voxel by voxel maps, much like uh, fMRI um, analysis for these important genes. For the oxytocin receptor, for the oxytocin gene, which is the structural gene for oxytocin that produces oxytocin, and for CD38, which, like I said before, um, regulates the excretion of oxytocin. Um, and so by doing this, we could actually look at these mental states. And the way that we could do this um, was by using large-scale fMRI meta-analysis using a tool called Neurosynth. Um, this, is, this is a really cool tool because what you can do is you can get a certain search term, um, be, it, be it pain, be it social, uh, be it happy or some sort of emotion, um, it extracts or looks through a corpus of over 14,000 studies and then creates and extracts the coordinates and creates a map for those given mental states. For some mental states, you might get 10,000 studies. For others, you might get 40. It doesn't matter. What it does is it collates all the available studies out there and, and, crea- and, and can cre- create an activation map for a given mental state. Really, really cool. Um, so with this, you can do both forward inference. So you can actually get a term and go which areas of the brain are associated with this term, or you can do reverse inference. And when you're doing reverse inference, you can give it a map and you can actually go, okay, what mental states are most highly correlated with this map? 
And this actually gives us high specificity because you might get a certain map that's associated with a, with, with a term, but there might be a thousand other terms which are more highly correlated. Um, so with reverse inference, if you give it a map, you can actually see what mental states this map is associated with. And this is exactly what we did with the oxytocin receptor map. We, we put these maps in and we saw what were the highest correlations with, uh, with mental states. And, um, and, and we, we, f- we found some very interesting outcomes. A lot of them is what we expected. Some stuff which is associated with, with social behavior. Um, but other stuff which is a bit more broad. Um, and more, more broadly speaking, things associated with reward or with anticipation. Um, uh, but also with appetites and aversive mental states. Um, and the most interesting one that came out, or most unexpected one, was taste. Um, taste is not something you'd sort of associate with oxytocin, but it seems to play an important role. And this actually makes more sense with more and more studies coming out suggesting that oxytocin has a role to play in appetite and, and energy regulation. So, of course, uh, like I said before, there could be a situation where, okay, you have this high, you have this correlation between this mental state and oxytocin receptor, but what if there are like a thousand other mental states which are more highly correlated? Um, so we answer that question by actually, um, plotting a distribution um, of every um, of of the um, of every single gene, every single protein coding gene, for every single um, mental state, looking at how high percentage wise was the oxytocin receptor um, in, in this distribution, and we found that the oxytocin receptor was among the, the top one or the top two percent for all these terms. So not only were they highly related, but it seems to have a very high biological relevance for these particular terms in terms of anticipation, appetite and aversive mental states. Um, so, of course, we've got all these gene sets, so we may as well actually see, in an exploratory sense, what things are the most highly correlated, um, sorry, what genes are the most highly correlated with the oxytocin receptor. And this is quite revealing, in that we found that the top, among the top highest um, related genes when it, came, when it comes to expression patterns were genes related to metabolic expression. Um, and the genes which had the highest negative correlation were genes that were associated, um, associated with mental illness or with, with schizophrenia. Um, so this was, this was, this was quite revealing, quite exploratory, but, um, but quite revealing. Um, okay. So, uh, you probably heard of the reproducibility crisis. I, I think the next crisis is going to be the, the, the theory crisis. The fact that theories, in psychology, when you compare them to theories in other areas of science like biology or physics, are much less developed. And there have been some very strong arguments made. It's changed my mind. I used to be someone going, a replication crisis, it's, it's questionable research practices, it's pre-registration. Now I don't think so. Um, now I actually think that a lot of the problem is that we have poor theory. Um, I recommend checking out this paper because this, this is a paper that actually changed my mind, that a lot of the problems that we have are, in fact, problems of theory. Um, and so this has actually led me to kind of questioning, well, is there a problem with current oxytocin theories? And I think there is. Um, my research and other research has found that oxytocin's effects aren't exclusively social. We, we're seeing that oxytocin can influence um, cues that are both social and non-social, um, both when it came to the gene expression stuff, but other studies. Uh, it influences learning, both social and non-social as well. Um, so what I've done is um, I've taken an approach, uh, quite an old approach, from uh, Nico Tinbergen, who won the Nobel Prize in the late 60s. In fact, he's the only person, I, I love it that in, in sort of introductory psychology lectures, a lot of people are like, oh, there's only been a few Nobel Prizes for psychology. We've got Kahneman and, and Tversky, 
Um, and, and, but a lot of people kind of ignore that the only prize given to social behavior, to social behavior, was Nico Tinbergen um, and his colleagues um, in the late 60s. Um, and Tinbergen had a, a very interesting way of actually understanding a given phenotype or a given behavior, um, which is by understanding the, the, the proximate causes, as in the role of development and the role of mechanism, um, but also evolutionary explanations, um, adaptive significance. Why do, how does this assist with, uh, with current survival or current behavior? Um, but also, how does this actually track um, across, across evolutionary history? How did this change? How did this thing evolve? If we actually understand these four, um, these four questions or, or these four aspects, we can better understand a given phenotype. And people are beginning to do this um, with, with a whole bunch of stuff, um, particularly with, with medicine and with disease, by actually understanding both these proximate causes and these, uh, these evolutionary, um, these evolutionary uh, explanations, we can better understand given phenotypes. Um, and I think as well is it also recognises that most research is concerned about what's happening now. What's happening now for, for a given adult, not how these things actually change over time. So I want to, with my future research, actually address how these things change, how does oxytocin signaling change across development, um, but also how does it change across evolution. And there's some really interesting stuff um, in the pipeline. Um, so to, to, to get close to, to, to wrapping up, we've seen that originally when oxytocin research first came out, we thought this is a, pro, a pro-social hormone. It's, it's, it had, used to have the nickname the cuddle hormone or the happy hormone. That's out the window. Um, then we used to think, well, it's, it's a social salience hormone. Um, but I think with more recent evidence, that's not, that's not necessarily true either. Um, so in response to that, I've more recently um, proposed that oxytocin is actually a regulatory hormone. Helps regulate your internal states, and it helps, and it does that by helping predict the future, by helping predict what other people, how other people are going to behave, which is essentially theory of mind. Theory of mind, by understanding someone's thoughts and emotions, you can better understand what they're going to, what they're more likely to do, do in the future. Um, and I've outlined this um, this idea in a in a in a paper that's currently under review, but I've actually posted the uh, the, the preprint online, so you can have a look through how I've actually gotten to this conclusion based on a Tinbergian perspective, based on looking at development, looking at mechanism, um, and looking at an evolutionary perspective. It seems very clear that oxytocin appears to act like an allostatic hormone in the sense that by helping predict what's going to happen in the future, it helps adjust your behavior and your thoughts and intentions. All right, so to wrap things up, um, we have new tools available that we can do, that we can apply to improve uh, the precision of oxytocin research. And these tools can also be used for other areas of psychology. And by using these tools, we can more quickly get to that so-called plateau of productivity to figure out what does the system actually do. We can better figure out the limits of oxytocin and what role it actually plays in human physiology um, and behavior. Um, the, 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 the second point is that oxytocin plays a really complex role. It's not, it's not as simple as being a social hormone, but it plays a role in complex uh, mental states. Um, and the final point is this idea that it's becoming clearer, at least to me, and that's what the evidence suggests, that oxytocin helps maintain stability in a changing environment. And that's what I'm, what I'm going to be addressing um, in the next few years of my research. How does oxytocin actually do that? And I'll be addressing this using all those four Tinbergian um, perspectives. Um, so, of course, I'm very happy to take questions now, but if you have any other questions, uh, please uh, send me um, an email, um, and i also share a lot of this work on methodology, on my podcast, Everything Hurts, um, but also on my own podcast, 
uh, physiology behavior, which, which um, talks about uh, research in oxytocin and heart rate variability. So thank you for your attention.